This is Framed, a podcast where a group of friends get together once a week to talk about movies, what we liked about them, what we didn't like, and how they're made. I'm Elliot. I'm Robert. And I'm Brennan. This week, we take a look at the 1987 Coen Brothers classic, Raising Arizona. Uh, this was my pick for the Coen Brothers month, um, and I really I love this film. I love this film for a lot of different reasons, but one of the big reasons that I love this film is it's like an indie darling through and through. Uh, they wanted to do Hudsucker Proxy, I think, when they were doing this. Oh, yes. Yeah. And they they couldn't get the money for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it required too big of a budget. Uh, so they went back and they were like, okay, what's something we can do on a small budget? Mm. And depending on who you ask, this cost them between two and five million, uh, which, yes, a lot of money, but at the same time, nothing for a film. Right. Uh, and I just think that it like shows how like engaging characters and like fun plots can take the place of production value and really just like draw you in. Mm -hmm. And there is no shortage of amazing actors in this uh, film. Uh, So uh, I'm really excited that you guys uh, watched it this week and that we're going to get to discuss it. Uh, Do we want to just do some initial thoughts first and then I'll get into a synopsis? Well, so going into this... um... I hadn't heard about it until we decided to do it. Um, the first half, probably, of this movie, um, I didn't think it was terrible by any means. It just was, wasn't for sure completely where it was going. Mm. Um, but then once we get started through that second half, it, I mean, it kind of really hit home for me uh, right now. So it was kind of got emotional during it and I, I really enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, Elliot, what about you? Um, so this was my, uh, my third time seeing this movie. Um, uh, like I mentioned on, on last week's episode, I'm a big Coen brothers fan. So I've, I've seen almost all of their movies multiple times. Um, this is definitely one of my, my more favorite Coen brothers films. Um, Though I, I wouldn't necessarily put it at the top of my list, I, I still enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, yeah, I mean, if you compare it to their their first film, uh, Blood Simple, like Blood Simple, very much feels like a an indie, you know, shoestring kind of movie. And this this is sort of like sure. their <clears throat> their next step up. Um, like it still feels like an indie movie, but it's definitely more in the realm of like more mainstream, like something you you know just like a regular movie you'd see in theaters. Um, yeah, it's got explosions. It's got stars. It's yeah. Got chase yeah. Scenes. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, I, I would maybe still sort of consider this like, well, I mean, it is, it is early Coen brothers. This is like their, their second um, feature, but it's, yeah. to me, it feels like they're still trying to find their footing in this. Um, mm. Like I, there's definitely a lot that I love here, um, but there there are definitely also a few scenes that didn't quite work for me, um, and I I'm you know interested in 
talking about those in a bit more detail later. But um, by and large, no, I, I really, I really like this movie, and I think that it's it's side splittingly funny in in several places. And and uh, yeah, I I, uh, I think I probably liked it the most um, on this third viewing. Um, like it's it's grown on me over the years. I'd say. Awesome. Well, I'm really excited to dive into those scenes and kind of talk about the moments that we loved uh, and maybe some of the moments that didn't quite land with us. Um, Before we do that, I'm going to do just a very like quick synopsis of the plot in case anyone is just listening because they love our voices and not because they've seen the movie, just so you kind of know where the film is going. And then I think we're going to just kind of jump around to whatever scenes or moments that stood out to us that we really love. So the film starts with an 11 minute narrated montage that, uh, the infamous lovable, brilliant Nick cage is narrating. (laughs) He plays, uh, H.I. or Hi, uh, McDonoughue? McDonough, I guess. McDonough? I've heard it both ways. Uh, a lovable criminal. Uh, he never uh, robs with live ammunition, but he's just constantly getting arrested. And this 11-minute open uh, introduces you to him. Uh, to the love interest, his wife, Ed, who at the time is working at the prison he's always getting thrown into. Um, And it introduces you to some side characters uh, that we'll run into again, but basically it's setting up the ordinary world. It Mm -hmm. shows that he is constantly getting in trouble, getting thrown into jail, that he's meeting and falling in love with Ed, that he decides that if love is in the world, he has something to do other than commit crimes. So he's going to go straight. He gets married. Uh, they get a trailer. He gets a job at Hudsucker Industries. And um, is that really the name of the machine shop? That is the name of the machine <laughs> shop. It's brilliant. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so uh, works at the machine shop. Uh, And life is great. They call it the salad years. Um, But then his wife says, I want to have a kid. Let's have a kid. They find out that they can't have kids. And because he's a convicted felon, they can't adopt either. Um, So this breaks us into the the premise of the film. Uh, They they need a kid. They want a kid. They can't have a kid. Uh, we then go on to find out that the, uh, baron of furniture in Arizona, unpainted (laughs) furniture, uh, has had five kids, uh, and they say it's more than they can handle. So Ed and Hi decide they'll go and kidnap a kid because they've got more kids than they know what to do with. And then they'll have a kid and everything will be great. So they go, they grab the kid, they come home. Uh, And things get complicated when uh, two fellow inmates from uh, the penitentiary where High was stuck, Gail and... Evel. uh, Evel, that's right. Uh, Snotes uh, break out of prison and come 
to seek refuge at High's trailer. Um, of course, Ed doesn't love this, doesn't love that there is, you know, convicted felons on the lam uh, while they've got a kidnapped kid at their house, like all sorts of issues. Um, High decides it'll be fine. It'll be great. Uh, they go to bed. He has the dream that uh, the lone rider of the apocalypse has been sent out <laughs> to uh, find them, uh, which we will later discover is not just a dream, but a real character. Uh, and then we see what life looks like for this new family in just a little snippet. Uh, High's boss comes over with his wife and four or five terrible children. <laughs> um, they uh, get into a spat. Uh, High loses his job. He starts feeling like he has nowhere else to turn. He decides to, rather than go out and buy diapers, to go and rob a convenience store for diapers. He sort of um, has a relapse back into being a criminal. For sure. Uh, he manages to get away uh, without getting caught. To our knowledge, this is the only time he's succeeded at getting away from a convenience store after robbing it. Um, and this, of course, upsets uh, his wife, Ed. He has to decide, is he going to be a criminal or a family man? Uh, the convicts back at his house... Uh, say, hey, you know, it's financial troubles. Uh, this is who you are. Why don't you come on this job with us? You might be a criminal, but at least you can support your family. Uh, he decides, yeah, that's probably what he's going to do. But before he can leave, the uh, felons find out that the kid isn't adopted, isn't <coughs> theirs, but is in fact kidnapped. Mm -hmm. They decide they're going to take the baby Um for the reward money. Uh, so then they leave, and then the, the final act is High and Ed trying to get the kid back from these criminals, deal with uh, Leonard Smalls, mm -hmm. the lone horseman of the apocalypse, and finally uh, they decide that... Uh, the kid is not theirs and they shouldn't keep him and they return him. And we have a touching little ending scene. Um, so that's kind of the, the basic arc of this story. Um, but just with those broad strokes, you, you lose a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a very farcical uh, film. Yeah. Uh, they set out to make something as different from Blood Simple as possible to mm -hmm. kind of show their range. Um, and I think they succeed in doing this. Oh, yeah. Um, Nick Cage's character, High, has a tattoo of the of Woody Woodpecker mm -hmm. on his arm. And uh, that's because Nick Cage saw this as a live-action Looney Tunes. He wanted it to feel very crazy and larger than life mm -hmm. uh so what were some moments that stood out to either one of you that you kind of want to dive into and discuss a little bit well speaking of that tattoo that was one thing that kind of threw me off 
maybe you guys could enlighten me on this a little bit sure. because the what was the the other guy's name? Leonard that had the Smalls. Tattoo? Yeah, Leonard. What was? Did I miss the significance between them both having that tattoo? I I don't think so. This is something that's puzzled me every time I've I've watched the film. Um, and my my current running theory is that it's it's sort of like a um uh, we we talk about Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey a lot on this show um but <clears throat> there's this aspect of the hero's journey where the villain is supposed to be a reflection of the hero um like a darker version of himself and so i think that to me that's what the the matching tattoos sort of symbolizes is that Leonard Smalls is like <clears throat> this evil counterpart to to high which that's kind of the gist of what I was getting from it. But at the same time, I just didn't like there was no it, it, it's pretty opaque. Like they they there there's no it's never referenced anywhere else in the film, I don't think. Um, and they, it just sort of thrown in as a kind of a, a question mark almost. Well, Robert, did you have any anything you wanted to add to that or? No, I mean, I basically agree with what you said, Elliot. I think that uh, either a darker version of himself or I I think maybe a more apt description of what he represents is like evil itself. Mm -hmm. And I think the the like whole idea of I's character is like do we do bad things because we're bad people Mm -hmm. or is there, you know, the, the ability for good and the ability for evil in all of us. And, you know, the, the woodpecker is representing more of his like outlandish, uh, non law abiding choices. Mm. Um, but, I, I don't know that there's a, a right way or a, a wrong way of reading that. Yeah. Um, I, I do particularly like how, um, and you kind of alluded to this in the synopsis, how, <clears throat> you know, when, when Leonard is introduced in that, that dream sequence, it's not really made clear if he's a real person or not. And he, he sort of, as the film goes on, sort of becomes more concrete in the plot and not just this apparition that, that high is imagining. I really like that, that they, they sort of introduce him as this, like where we're not really sure what he is. Like he's, he's like, like it's sort of implied in the beginning that he's like this hellish, like, you know, force of judgment that's coming after high and Ed after, because of this horrible thing that they've done. And it's only later on that we realize that, no, he's just another character in this plot. Which definitely is, like, a smart decision if you want to include this character. Because Mm -hmm. I think if you just introduce this character cold, like, you lose your audience 100% of the time. Yeah. He's too mythical. He's too crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, But we're introduced as, like, oh, yeah, he's this phantom, this spirit, this dream. And then it's like, oh, no 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 he he's actually here but at this point like we're almost used to him this is a, a but s- yeah go ahead oh no I, I was gonna go off onto a tangent for a second have you guys seen the first spongebob movie i have not no <laughs> brennan uh was that the one with david hasselhoff yes 
the one where they write on David yes. Hasselhoff's back. The the character yes. of Dennis from uh, that movie, like I feel like, was a, a direct ripoff of of Leonard from Raising Arizona. I, I um, can kind of see that. I always uh, draw a different parallel uh, that no one else will get, but maybe you guys will appreciate. I always draw needles. Um, just this (laughs) overly powerful crazy Um, uh it's a it's i'm sure you probably hadn't even seen no i I, I hadn't yeah so yeah um so it can it can only be subconscious through other films or something if there is anything to draw there right i mean also Uh, they they sort of revisit this in no country for old men um like mm. the uh the character of anton chigurh definitely feels like you know, at least in the same vein as as um, as Leonard Smalls here. There's For definitely sure. a lot more of a threatening, menacing character. It's it's played totally straight in that movie. Do you think that you could make an argument that Smalls doesn't actually exist? Um, I, I think it'd be tough to make that argument. I mean, it because. It's, you know, High is aware of his existence through his, you know, sort of dreams and, and premonitions. But we have that scene where, where Leonard speaks to, to Nathan Arizona. Yeah, so that is definitely the uh, the fly in the ointment, as it were, for the theory. But, like, you have him imagining evil itself. And then in the final scene, they're like, no, we we saved the kid from Smalls. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Mr. Arizona's like, this had nothing to do with Smalls. This was all you. Mm. Um, and like, is is all their injuries, all their everything, like, are they actually responsible for that? And Smalls really does just represent the the evil within them because there's also good within them. Like they, they mm-hmm. have a desire to love to have a fit like their, their dreams, their aspirations are not these huge, you know, outwardly selfish, you know, like clearly they choose selfish means to fulfill them, but yeah. like they, they want to have a family. That's it. They don't want to be super rich. They don't want to, you know, live in the biggest houses. They don't, want to be the most powerful people they just want to have a family so um if there wasn't a scene where smalls shows up at the furniture store Mm -hmm. i would really really fight for this like oh no he (laughs) because the whole like fights that he drives through the bank i guess and people get out of the way of the motorcycle but like he really does not interact with anyone else yeah um i have a feeling and, like if this was our script and this was a project we were doing we would probably have prob we would probably would have fought for the theory that he was completely imaginary the whole time <laughs> Well, and I'll also point out he pulls up at the prison to look at the hole that John Goodman mm-hmm. uh, screams Dug out of. Nobody yeah. acknowledges uh, him, and no one acknowledges him at all. So nope. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It was all a dream. <laughs> yeah, I mean it. They definitely like. It, he does float through the film. I will say that. Like he, he, like he does kind of remain this menacing otherworldly kind of presence that that characters 
you know, until the very end is, is pretty much unstoppable and all the other characters are, are sort of, you know, I guess it's just Nathan that talks to him directly, but he's, you know, sort of intimidated by him anyway. Right. Uh, Talking about the furniture store scene, that was one of the moments where I was just dying laughing where they were playing his, you know, theme song as he's like walking through this furniture store. It's just such a great, uh, like cognitive disconnect. The music in this throughout Mm -hmm. was just so strong. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Very, Um, um, Oh, uh, Carter Burwell did the the score. He's a a, a frequent Coen Brothers collaborator, I think. Yeah, um, but between like the yodeling in mm-hmm. chase scenes and even just like the the fusing of diegetic and mm. score, yeah. Uh, in the opening montage, he's uh, in prison and he's singing some hymn i think i don't remember Mm. what but as he's singing like the score starts playing along with it i didn't notice Um, that there there's a lot of just like really really nice moments with the Mm -hmm. score throughout this uh what were some other moments that stood out to us other than smalls well you mentioned the um the opening 11 minute sort of montage introduction scene um in in your synopsis i that that definitely stood out to me as just a, an impressive little piece of filmmaking. Um, like it almost functions as like a short film on its own. It's just, it's very tight, very well composed. Um, like I completely agree. I think that it has a very similar feeling to, well, not in tone, but in like just character development of like Pixar openings, like from, yeah, yeah, definitely. Like just, we're we're giving you a bunch of information and a bunch of time, but it it's very well uh, crafted. I was actually mm-hmm. thinking the short film aspect. Uh, I was like, could you do just this opening as a fundraising piece mm. for like the whole project? And you probably could, but I think you would have some really scared uh, backers mm-hmm. if because like the absurdity and looney tuneness is at like a four during that. And mm-hmm. then we crank it up to an 11, like almost right um, away. Yeah. Uh, but I, I do agree that it, it's super tight and I love that. I'm not a huge fan of voiceover like generally, mm-hmm. but how it is done in this, it it's almost like Nick Cage is bringing you around the campfire and saying mm. like, hey, here's here's a crazy story. You're like, <laughs> grab a beer and sit down. Right. You're going to want to hear this. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think it just works really, really nicely. The the other thing that they establish early on, um, like is, I mean, tone's not not quite the right word, but just like this sort of particular mode of dialogue that is kind yeah. of peppered throughout this film like it's almost like king james it's very stylized bi- bi- almost biblical i would say like you know he that's he, so he, funny that you say that because they reference that like the things they were reading were magazines and the bible <laughs> and that's that's where it comes from so you're you're 100 right okay okay like uh, biblical <laughs> I'm, I'm glad i'm not off base on that because that definitely like stood out to me this time like he where he he describes ed as as um rocky ground where my seed could find no purchase like i just love like there's just so much stuff like that in this movie it's just it's it's great 
also that little moment in it with the freaking doctor using his cigar to point <laughs> at pictures. It's just so absurd mm. and and beautiful and it it's ten out of ten. Mm. It's it's why the Cohen brothers are the Cohen brothers. Like yeah. you watch that eleven minutes without seeing anything else, and you're just like, Yeah, okay. Okay, I get it. I mm. get why people like these filmmakers. Yeah. Yeah. I really enjoyed the bank scene. Um, yeah. That it it wasn't as it was a kind of in some aspects I thought it was kind of a kind of like an icebreaker like it broke some tension. Mm-hmm. Gave some good laughs, but it's also kept up the tension at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um I really like John Goodman. You have um, to love John Goodman. Yeah, He's so good like, in this. What, I really like him. What a gift. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the first of many appearances mm-hmm. in Coen Brothers films. Yes. Uh he he becomes a a recurring feature, but oh my goodness, like I think 80% of his screen time is him screaming. <laughs> his scream in this. Yep. yep. <laughs> Yeah. And it's it's so great. Like from him popping out of his tunnel screen <laughs> to hilarious. when they forget the uh the baby child, baby. baby. Yeah. Just oh my goodness. I love him so much. But to go He's back to what you were talking about with the the bank scene, um, I think that's the funniest scene in the whole thing. Yeah. Like it just works so well for me. Mm-hmm. Um and you see it like homaged in one way or the other now to the point of like dead still get on the ground like giving counter contradictory uh, contradictory yeah. thank you uh actions during things like that has been done to the point where it's almost cliche now <laughs> but like in 87 mm, it's cold yeah. yeah yep one thing um that uh stood out to me about this scene also well i guess like after the bank scene was over. Um, uh, Nathan Jr. falling off the top of the car and landing upright on the ground, like perfectly on the double yellow lines. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's like, I, I mean, I, I get that it's like oversized Looney Tunes. Um, you know, you're you're just supposed to go with the like the physics of it. They did yep. that joke more than once though, and that that like the fact that he lands upright every single time did start to bother me after a while yeah but i think to be fair i think that you give the cohen brothers this film to make in 2020 2021 you know now when they're established i think the kid is you know laying face down um (laughs) but i know if i was in that situation I would not be saying, yeah, let's just let's put the eight month year old face down on the cement. That <laughs> that sounds better. Yeah, let's well, do it. Or they would have um, they would have had like a CG car seat and you'd see it like flip off the car and, and, right, and then exactly. land upright on the ground. Like th- there would be other ways of doing it. Like mm. for the time, the restraints and the like not wanting to be arrested for child yeah. endangerment. <laughs> I I think this was a, a fine choice. And like well, at this point, we've got guys throwing hand grenades at rabbits and <laughs> yeah, yeah. right. 
no, no. Even, I mean, even more absurd things sure. than, than children falling off and being. Isn't that a safety feature of a car seat? That oh, doesn't right. it like roll to the upright portion? Yeah, I think it's, it's like weighted science. at the bottom, so it always yeah, right. lands upright. Yeah, it, it's one <laughs> of those you know little little things you can can try to bath over, but never never. <laughs> right Chips over but never falls yeah there's enough else in this scene that i love that it it's it's like a nitpick that is is not that big of a deal like <clears throat> the fact that we as the audience remember that the car seat is on top of the car and then mm-hmm. like a long like almost a minute goes by where they forget about nathan jr it, it, like you're just thinking about him the whole time like what happened to the baby <laughs> um <laughs> and then that great <laughs> shot where they they come back to get him it's like I guess they must have sped up the footage like it didn't look like yeah. the baby was blue screened in. But like, you know, you have this great shot where he the car like hits the brakes and just like stops like an inch away from the car seat. My my guess is it's a combination of them speeding up the footage and then they had people push down on the front end when it did stop. So mm-hmm. that there was a more like dramatic car like stopping. Mm-hmm. Um because yes like the it's it's legitimate like i i don't think in 87 at, at that budget you're gonna have that clean of rotoscope no like it it, it looked real it has it has to be real so they must have just sped it up and you know exaggerated the stop at the end mm-hmm. yeah so just to shift gears here a little bit. Um, I mentioned in my intro that there were a few parts of this that didn't work for me. And I'm, I'm curious to hear, um, if they worked for you guys. Um, the, the convenience store chase scene in the, in the middle of the movie. Um, Oh my goodness. You're not about <laughs> to complain about that. Again, it's like, there's a lot that I like about it. Um, like the camera work is great. The, the, the chaos, uh, like the, steadily building momentum of it is great i just it gets to be a bit too much for me after a while like there's to me there, there's too many elements. it's a hat on a hat on a hat it's a hat on a hat on a hat yeah. yeah it's like you got the dogs chasing him and then the you know the police are chasing him and you know random people from the grocery store are getting involved and it just it just get to me it just feels like too much by the end of the scene the look that Nick Cage gives the grocery store employee with the shotgun <laughs> when he shoots the shotgun at him. I don't care what your feelings are towards Nick Cage as, uh, you know, if he's a national treasure or, <laughs> you know, a, uh, a, a painful disgrace a, to a the pig. screen. Uh, or a pig. Ah, um, like, that look right there, he should have gotten an Oscar. Man, it's so <laughs> good. I'm just, and I would argue that he is like winking at the audience exactly what you're saying at that point. Like seriously, we're we're taking now. Now the cashier has a shotgun and is shooting me <laughs> when I have not done anything in this store. Like I've just run into the store at this point. Like mm-hmm. I haven't committed any crimes or threatened anyone here really like we're we're elevating it again mm-hmm. um uh, i i think that that's a fair criticism i do i think that like it it definitely is just like one more thing and one more thing and mm-hmm. one more thing and one more thing of like a pretty similar note yeah um 
I think if like the gas station guy didn't also have a gun and start shooting and the police didn't start shooting and like we were slowly raising the stakes as people were joining in, uh, that it might have felt more earned to some people. But for, for me, I like it. It's Looney Tunes. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, yeah, uh, of course, more... everyone's going to pull out a gun and start shooting him. And of course, a woman's going to hit the cop with her cart and the cop's going to go flying mm-hmm. instead of, you know, just stopping. Like, yeah, it's almost it, that that like that uh, Scooby Dude like door chase effect where they, they're going in and out much. of the doors. Yeah. And, and like as it goes on, more and more things are getting added. Yes, it it has a lovely like nostalgic cartoon feeling for me. Mm-hmm. So I love it. But I, I don't think that. I don't think you're even alone in having a problem with it. I'm sure you could find plenty of people calling out that it's, you know, yeah, a hat on a hat on a hat. It's not even that I, I disliked the scene. It's just I, I, I couldn't, like, help but think, that, like, you know, Coen Brothers, you know, 10 years on, like, would have been a bit more restrained about it and had found, like, more, I don't know. I don't want to say sure. tasteful because it's like this whole movie is supposed to be ridiculous, but like just sort of a more maybe like we know what we're doing here and rather than just like yeah. throwing stuff at the screen. I think that's fair. We're talking about some of this, this scene in particular. Um, and as we've been talking about a lot of these scenes um, after Robert and Robert, just you just now we're just talking about the cartoon Looney Tune aspect of it. Yeah, I watching this the first time, um, I didn't really think about it that much. But now that we're going over each of these scenes, um, it I can that's all I can picture now in my head is like Looney Tunes, just different cartoons. And I feel like this would have had a completely not completely different vibe, but a different aspect if this would have been a cartoon. Mm. For sure. Um, I think the, the beauty of the Coen brothers is that they, and like, we'll see this even more, uh, I will argue even more. Some of you might argue less, but in Fargo, uh, mm-hmm. which I believe is what we're watching next yeah, is th- that they get away with absurdity because they keep the heart in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and even though, and like Buster Scrubs is going to be the same way. Yeah. Uh, you you have this very stylized, uh, larger than life, and even farcical, even in their serious stuff, like they they push farcical. Yeah, they do. Um, but like it, I think they get away with it more than anyone else because like they like as ridiculous as Ed is just sobbing during the montage while they're that she can't have a, like when she pulls up with the police sirens going and, you know, (laughs) announces she's barren, like that's farcical. It's so larger than life. But like that pain of like this thing that, that you need, that you want and not being able to do it, that's real. And Mm -hmm. like, so Mm -hmm. even though they're pushing the farcical, they've got it grounded in these real emotions and pathos. Yeah. Um, so like, uh, the reason that I keep saying that it's Looney Tunes is because like, uh, Nick Cage, I don't know if you guys have followed much like about, his workings instead of just his work 
but like notoriously directors hate working with Nick Cage. Mm. Um, I have never worked with Nick Cage, so I can't speak one way or the other, <laughs> but uh, he, he seems great. But a lot, he seems to have a lot of energy and a lot of ideas, and he likes bringing a lot of ideas to his characters. Um, and you can imagine directors, particularly the Coen brothers, but a lot of directors that have like very specific uh, vision and and you know style mm -hmm. they they don't necessarily want these ideas they want their ideas they want to take it yep. in their direction um right and if you if you do any like research into either the coen brothers talking about nick cage or nick cage talking about the coen brothers you'll see that like there was some tenseness on set like neither one of them complains about the other but there's definitely some uh some like they were on eggshells but the thing that he brought to the table was the woody woodpecker tattoo mm. and they loved that and they went with it and the other thing he does is his hair gets poofier he, yeah. he would like run his hand <laughs> in his hair to build up static electricity depending on how crazy the scene was getting mm. um, it's like a david fincher thing i enjoyed that yeah, so like the 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 thing that both the the actor and the directors like were completely on the same page for for this film was that high is is a Looney Tune is a cartoon. Mm -hmm. um, so I I think if you're viewing it with that in mind, then like everything's great and you can just ride along and enjoy the ride. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, I <clears throat> totally agree. I actually didn't notice that his hair was getting more and less poofy as the as the film progressed, but I could could definitely see that. I mean, it it's not the most consistent because it really does seem like he's doing it himself. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it is noticeable. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, one thing that I really loved uh, about this film is the the visual gags um i think that the coen brothers know how to shoot a movie mm -hmm. uh regardless of what they're shooting uh and when they're shooting a comedy like they know how to use the camera to help sell the joke yeah um, what what so, uh, what did you have in mind specifically because i there's so, one scene that's coming to mind for me same the thing that just jumps to my head right away at the beginning of the uh, film, during the montage, the second time he's arrested, uh, we see him come out, and there's this lovely bit of physical comedy walked himself out of his getaway car, uh, and then he just runs out into the <laughs> night. Uh, and they do it without any cover. We don't need a close-up showing us that the door's locked or anything. Like, they just have full faith in the audience. They have the camera super high up, bird's right. eye, watching him just struggle with the car and then just running off into the darkness. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the scene that jumps to mind for me is the um, the the tail end of the, the Leonard Smalls nightmare sequence where we have this, like um steady cam shot that that flies across the the front yard of the the Arizona house and up the ladder and into the bedroom and the in, evil into her, dead shot the evil dead shot exactly it was like totally ripped out of uh, Sam Raimi's 
playbook, which well, makes mean, sense because they were working with Sam Raimi on, they're, on stuff They're working at the time. together. I don't think it's ripped. I, I think it's a lovely homage. homage. I don't think it's ripped <clears throat> off, but yeah, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Brennan, you said you had one? Oh, the latter, that was the one I, I was particularly thinking about, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it must have been a pain to pull off, um, you know, with 80s technology. Well, yeah, there's definitely a hidden cut with the uh, the curtain. Once oh. it's up the ladder, uh, there, there's a cut with the curtain on the camera and then the curtain getting ripped off to be inside. Nice, I didn't notice. Um, but the rest of it, like, I, I honestly don't know how they went up the ladder. Like, it, it it's not a it's not a techno crane. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that much. They don't have techno cranes then. So, uh, <clears throat> and the the way that Sam Raimi did that was they literally drilled a camera into a two by four and mm. had two people hold it and run. Right. So you couldn't uh, really do that with a ladder. You can't do that with a ladder. So I, I really don't know how they, it's definitely a cool shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, we haven't really talked about this scene, but another favorite of mine is the, um, the foreman and his family coming over to visit with all their mm, terrible yes. kids. <laughs> yes. What a good little set piece. What uh what stood out to it? Um I don't know. I mean this to me this this sort of felt like the the counterpoint to the 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 chase scene that I I didn't care as much for. Like to me this is more like the speed I was you know I would expect from a film like this of of like, you know, steadily growing, you know, intensity you know, starting yeah. from at one point and ending at another point, um, you know, culminating with him punching his foreman in the face. Um, yeah, no, I mean, there's just a lot of, uh, a lot of great little, you know, just, I, I love movies where you include kids just being terrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, like just a lot of little stuff like that, like him, one of the kids writing fart on the wall. Um, yeah. and then that comes back later, which, which is great. Um, and uh, yeah, that just you know, like them, you know, wrecking stuff and you know, squirting high in the in the groin with a water gun, and and then you've got Ed like you know, sort of piling on like, oh, we got to get his shots, we got to get this done, we got to get that done. He's you can see like on his face, he's he's just like crumpling under all of this weight that he's experiencing. <laughs> so well done, Dot is such a, a beautiful character mm-hmm. in her annoyance. Like you love to hate her. Um, and, and Glenn, um, just like doubling down on like this, on his like racist jokes that just aren't funny, <laughs> but, he just, yep. but he just keeps going. He doesn't back off like, like a normal person would. We've all met Glenn. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. That, that's a, it's a great scene. How about that Smalls blowing up scene? Mm. <laughs> that was, good that was one of those. I, whenever I was watching this, I complete wasn't really expecting that. Sure. And my inner dark humor was dying laughing, though. <laughs> like, I I was cracking up. Whenever, as soon as um, he was raising that pin up, I was like, oh, here it comes. Here it comes. And then that I, I like the buildup. It wasn't a big buildup. It was short. Yeah. But it was just enough that it was, I, it was perfect. I it loved was it. Earned, it was for sure. Yes. Yeah. It kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier, Brendan, about this, you know, 
like that that gag right there is like you know could have been in a you know in a looney tunes of you know you've got this grenade and then oh where's the pin oh and then they blow up yeah what about the ending with mr arizona's monologue what uh how did we feel about that i i felt like the ending was earned you're talking about the scene in the nursery where they bring nathan jr back yeah um i think in one sense the fact that he doesn't like call the cops on them is a little like again you sort of just have to go with it because it because this uh, this is the movie that we've been given um right it's but like that that didn't really bother me um the fact that he he sort of like without any explicit dialogue he kind of figures out like what happened like just kind of looking at them looking into the crib and you know just kind of looking at their body language he kind of figures it out i I thought that was Mm -hmm. um you know very very tastefully done i this was the point where so not too long before this i was wondering about i was thinking along everyone's uh character arcs Mm -hmm. and this i feel like in my opinion was definitely when they hit that arc um I broke down at this part. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm going through some, I mean, I'm not stealing children. I was going to say, let's clarify. <laughs> I'm not, to the listeners out there, I have not stolen a child. <laughs> but the fertility stuff, I mean, I'm going through that right now. Mm. Um, I mean, neither of us are completely barren, but um, yeah. still, it's a, it's a very, very hard journey that, I mean, not everyone thinks or even talks about, and that was the part that really hit home. And I, I just, that's, I could see that character arc. I could see it like they they brought the baby back. They're hitting their high points or low points, um, and deciding, oh, we need to change our ways. Things will. And through through Arizona's um, monologue, like it it changed them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also like that um, we it's sort of left ambiguous at the end of the film whether High and Ed stay together. Um, it's it's not. It kind of is a like a happily ever after, but but in the same sort of ambiguous way where we're given information through a dream and we're not really told explicitly if it's real or not we have this this... yeah go ahead i want to talk about that a little bit because i've watched this film a handful of times Mm -hmm. uh but this last time watching it i was like why does why does this sequence him him talking about a dream of the future and like his kids and and their kids coming in Mm -hmm. and like why does this sound so familiar? Like not, not familiar in the sense that the rest of the film, like I've watched it before, but like, like it, it reminds me of something and I want everyone, you two and anyone listening (laughs) to go and read, uh, green lights by Matthew McConaughey that came out. Uh, it's a book that came out this year or the end of last year. I, I'm not sure which, uh, I think he might have ripped off Raising Arizona (laughs) 
because he he claims he has this like spiritual awakening dream about not having because he was so concerned about getting married and then he had this dream where his 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 kids come come inside and welcome him and huh. he's all old but happy and it's like it's not exactly like this but it's very similar is it is it an autobiography yeah no it, it it's him like the the concept of green lights is how like he's looked out in the world for all all the green lights that mm-hmm. life gives him of like signals that he's doing the right thing and needs to keep going uh and all the different green lights that led him to where he is in his career right now mm-hmm. um I, for the record i enjoyed the book uh but like matthew pontificates proudly about <laughs> proper things of importance you know uh the entire time but uh it it's a fun one but yes it just when i was watching this i was like this is almost exactly what he put in his book so there you go <laughs> so take that on for this what you scene, will i've got I've got, I want to see, because both of you have watched this numerous times, and I, this is my only time that I've seen this. Yeah. Um, towards the end of that, when they're all gathering around that dinner table, something that I enjoyed was, which I don't, it's just, it's kind of left you questioning, the two empty chairs at the end of that table. Mm-hmm. Like, they... I'm trying to remember. Were they were in the dream? Were they standing up at the end, or were those two tables, or were those two chairs just empty? I want to say that they were sitting on the couch. That was a different shot. I think in the empty chair shot, you're thinking of Brennan. I I want to say that the camera keeps pulling back, and then we see them like standing behind the chairs. But I I could be remembering that wrong. That's why I was asking. I couldn't remember. Um, yeah, I, I, <clears throat> I wish I could remember exactly cause I do remember the chairs being empty, but I, I don't know if there was any further significance attached to that other than to just kind of give it like a dreamlike sort of quality where they're, they're there and they're right. not there. And, you know, we're just kind of floating through things, which is how I took it. I just wasn't for sure. I, I, that's why I'm asking the question. I, yeah, I, I don't remember um but i think don't they like aren't they standing aren't don't they like hold hands and then move into the chair that that sounds right i think i think that's right i think i think they're standing behind the table and their empty chairs are just empty chairs right that might have been Empty chairs at empty tables. (laughs) Um, So I I might just be incredibly dense, but I've never understood the final line of this film where he he wakes up and says, maybe it was Utah. Can you guys explain to me like what the joke is? The the joke is that he says like, it's not Arizona, but it's some in his dream. It's not Arizona. It's someplace like Arizona, though. And then at the end, he's like, maybe it's Utah. <laughs> okay. Uh, See, I, I, I was thinking about it too hard. Like, I thought that was yes. like what the joke was. But I was like, well, wait, why Utah? 
Because it's it's close to Arizona. Yeah, it's, it's Arizona. borders borders he, with he, Arizona. Yeah. Yep. He says it, it it wasn't Arizona, but it was so close. Mm. Maybe it was Utah. Which, <laughs> like, their ability to undercut a moment with a joke is is pretty high. Like even mm. before this, when uh, Mr. Arizona, big like, don't throw love away, and you know. You got to keep trying and and wait for for medicine to catch up with you and everything's going to be great. He then turns around and says, you can go out the way you came in, i.e. you can climb out the window to get out of here. Like, that's, and that's like, something that's something I normally don't like in movies. I yeah. don't like it when things get undercut like that. But mm-hmm. I whenever Gone Brothers do this because they they tend to do it a bit. And for I, sure. I yeah. Don't, I don't mind it when they do it. I I, I think, think it's they're like. Go, go ahead. ahead. Well, I, I think it's because it's internally consistent with the characters and the the cutting of the film. Like what you see a lot nowadays is that like when the joke happens, they'll like drop the music or like you have the characters like almost look into the camera. Um, but like in this, it's sort of a little more subtle. Like not not quite is like, hey, here comes the joke, guys. I think that we have seen this used to excess recently in the mm-hmm. last like five years. It's become very popular. Yeah. Um, Marvel movies uh, <laughs> are guilty of doing it constantly, sometimes really effectively, but constantly. Yeah. Uh, and where Marvel goes, a lot of films try to follow uh, because Marvel is yeah. what audience wants to see right now. Um, but like Joss Whedon, who did some work on Marvel and is one of the reasons that I think it's in there, uh, does this, uh, throughout his career as well. You can watch fire Buffy, um, Mm -hmm. or even iron giant. And you'll see like the, the, Mm -hmm. the moment getting undercut with a joke. Um, so I think if it's done well, it can be super effective. I just think we've seen so, so often, uh, yeah, it's just another films. tool in the toolbox, you know, and you just have to or another spice in the spice rack. You just have to know when to there use it. There we go. The paprika. Yes. You don't want to unscrew the lid and dump the whole thing in. Just just a little just little a little bit. bit. It elevates the flavor. <laughs> um okay. Uh final thoughts? Did um, anyone have any other scene they wanted to dive in and look at? I I think we covered just about everything. Um, yeah, like we it was pretty comprehensive, especially for going out of order like we did. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I I mean, I I, I really like this film. Um, you know, I'll, I'll happily watch it again. Oh, I'm sorry. There were there was one other scene I wanted to talk about that I was just like dying. Like it, this scene just kind of glossed over me the first two times that I watched this, and I don't know why it stuck out to me so much this time. But the scene in Nathan Arizona's house, like the morning after, where he's talking to the FBI agents, and like there's all these like overlapping conversations going on. Like I don't know why. Like I just found that so hysterically funny that the 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 FBI guys are asking like questions about the jammies. And he's like getting mad about people, you know, putting their feet up on the furniture and he's, you know, 
I think that is the clearest example of Coen Brothers oh, yeah. being Coen Brothers. It was like a little because, little like, bit of like the Big Lebowski before the Big Lebowski. Absolutely. Like having overlapping dialogue of everyone having just ridiculous but short and to the point responses to everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the FBI guys are just so great. This that. is so like, deadpan. Uh, we're handling we're handling the questions. We've got this. Now what pajamas were they wearing? Like just <laughs> It's so great. So great. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. So like, I mean, this is definitely like top shelf Coen brothers. Like I, I would not hesitate to recommend this film to people. Um, you know, I mean, it is, it is like on the earlier side of their, their catalog, but you, like you said, Robert, that you, they definitely, you can see them stretching as filmmakers and, and really showing off their, their chops with this and, you know, making something really memorable and unique and, um, just really well made um so yeah no i mean i i love this um are we doing scores now sure yeah i'll give it an eight out of ten okay brendan i'll probably give it a seven or an eight um i enjoyed it i it wasn't what i was expecting um like i said the first half of it was i think if i watched it again it would give me more i would probably rate it higher after watching a couple more times um definitely i don't know that ending i just love the ending personally Mm, so i'll give it an eight okay uh this film for me is like everything a film should be you know it knows what it wants to be it is that it's got a great score it's got phenomenal actors a solid script uh directors that know what they're doing Mm -hmm. uh it it isn't my favorite coen brothers but it's a good coen brothers it's a solid nine for me okay what about the the desert island i i for me i could probably take or leave this one like just because if i had to pick one coen brothers it probably wouldn't be this one again if the idea of the desert island is you're only allowed one film Raising Arizona isn't going. If the idea of the desert island is you can watch the film again and again and again and again, I, I, I think that I could definitely watch Raising Arizona again and again and again. Yeah, we, we probably need to define our, our desert island on one of these episodes, like what, what the actual rules of it are. That's that's what real podcasters would do. <laughs> Which, All by right. the way, please consider uh, giving us a five star <laughs> review. <laughs> yeah. Tell us if we should uh, define what the Desert Island is in uh, (laughs) reviews on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, Elliot, what uh, what do we have next week? Well, um, so we're going to continue on with our theme of Coen Brothers. And the next one we're going to be reviewing is Fargo, um, which was my pick. Um, Nice. So definitely looking forward to... Prepare to hate wood chippers. (laughs) Oh, Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Uh, Well, I am super excited to uh, revisit Fargo with you guys. Uh, Brennan, have you seen it before? I have not. I'm excited. This was actually Mm. one that's on my uh, watch list already. So I'm I'm excited to watch it. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for potting this week, guys. And yeah, uh, I will talk to you later. Good. As always. Bye. Bye.